Welcome to Complementary, a series covering the principles and practices of interface design hosted by Katie Langerman and Anthony Hobday. Today, we'll be discussing accessibility. All right, so today we're going to be discussing accessibility. Yes, it's a, it's like a, a bigger topic than it gets credit for, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Is maybe a good way to summarize it in that people people hope they can ignore it. And actually, it's it underpins more of interface design than I think people realize. But we'll get right. onto that. But yeah, it's it's an interesting one. Yeah, that that's why I was really excited to talk to you about it, because I feel like you are somebody who you spend a lot of your time looking at interfaces, discussing it with people. Um, you're really active on Twitter, starting threads and talking with different designers about interface design. And I'm interested to know more like how accessibility plays into those conversations, if at all, or how you Mm. think about it. Sometimes there are threads I see where I feel like it should be a part of that specific conversation for whatever reason, but it doesn't always come up. And I also wonder, like, are there specific times when it's more appropriate to have it be a part of the discussion or not, or should it always be a part of the discussion? It's kind of an interesting topic with a lot of different opinions and perspectives on it. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about it today. Given your experience having so many conversations on Twitter with so many different designers and perspectives, do you feel like accessibility is often part of that discussion or should it be more part of the or more or less part of those discussions Uh, even i i say even i as if i'm supposed to be above it all even i forget to consider accessibility often when i'm taking a screenshot of something that i think is well designed i'm only really considering it from my perspective in terms of what's comfortable for me to see or read or how i use the website often i'll post a screenshot or something and someone will reply um I want to say valid validly but that's an awkward word they'll they'll reply in a valid way to say oh this is not accessible for these reasons and uh, they're almost always right i say almost always because sometimes people say oh but this is not accessible and they don't say why which first of all is not accessible and second of all <laughs> uh, i get the impression that some people see something that actually a good example is uh the backgrounds on buttons for example the contrast doesn't need to be as high against the page background as text would be. So I think it's like four to five, four, four point five to one for text against the background, and it's three to one for the sort of uh, non-text or the I can't bounding the, the box kind of yeah yeah the surface for buttons. And so I do get the impression sometimes people are ready to jump on an accessibility problem sort of too quickly, and they haven't actually compared it against the guidelines. But uh, I'd, I'd say 90% of the time when someone says, oh, but this is not accessible, they're right. And so it's sort of a, a check for me in terms of, oh, so I share this thing that I thought was well-designed, but it's only particularly well-designed for me, you know, and maybe lots of other people, but there are definitely some people for whom it is not well-designed. And I do have to be more careful about that. So I suppose to actually answer your question is it's not a part of the conversation enough. And... Um, it's I, I, find, I personally find it easy to forget when I see something I think my initial immediate reaction is, oh, this is well designed because I like it. And so I share it. And then I'm essentially forgetting about the people for whom it would cause issues. 
Uh, I like to think that my own personal definition of design or good design is uh, generally accessible. So I don't think I share a lot of stuff that's really problematic. But um, I can't excuse myself completely because I, <laughs> I definitely have shared things that people have pointed out. Oh, this doesn't work for this reason. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of the, the things we've kind of discussed in previous episodes related to taste and like just basic design principles, like we're talking about contrast right now. Um, good design, I guess, is subjective, but if it has the appropriate contrast, not even from an accessibility perspective, like you're checking the actual ratio and making sure it passes the, the WCAG standard, ideally is more accessible by nature of being good design. So I, I feel like there's something there where it's so connected that it doesn't necessarily need to be called out specifically as this is checking a box for contrast. But I think, I don't know, sometimes like, is it any better to call out on Twitter, this is not accessible without saying why? Or I feel like this design would be improved with higher contrast. Like, is that a different conversation, even though they kind of mean the same thing in the end? Yeah, there's this, um, I've always felt there's an unwritten rule that you don't critique people's design in public. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, some of those conversations are cut short or can't happen in the first place because people should be aware that there's a problem with accessibility there. But I think in the design sort of community, there's a bit of a mental hurdle in terms of calling out people. Even though some of those discussions or disagreements might be about personal taste, and so those are almost less valid, whereas discussions or disagreements about accessibility, they're not really valid or invalid. If it doesn't follow the guidelines, then I think it's a lot more sensible to call that sort of thing out because there are uh, sort of firm guidelines that you can follow and that everyone agrees you probably should follow. But yeah, it's... Um, it's tricky partly because I found that in visual design specifically, often the things that people find more beautiful, like further down the spectrum of this is beautiful, are sort of softer. And so this is natural, you mentioned contrast, this is natural tension in contrast specifically where if you have sort of light gray text on a gray background, there are situations in which that does look better, regardless of whether you can read it, than a more um, a text in a background that contrasts more. And so that's always tricky because if you're just going off your own feedback loop internally in your head, you're reducing the contrast more and more and thinking, oh, this is a good place. And you don't constantly have that check to see whether it's dropped below the contrast requirements. And so that I think that tension is a source of a lot of the problems of people designing things that are not accessible because they're just relying on their own intuition almost. And they're lowering a slider basically in their head and saying, I'm going to stop here because that was good. And it doesn't look like I've gone too far when actually I have gone too far. And um, I think our design tools could do more to help us realize that. And I, I am seeing more and more of it. So that's um, that's a positive sort of direction. I don't feel like that's not built into Figma at all. I have like separate tools that I use to check mm. contrast. But imagine if it was built in and it's like showing you in real, yeah. like the same way that it's built into the browser or some browsers where it will show you if you're failing or passing a contrast check because it can it has that data available in dev tools but i don't feel like that same yeah. experience is really as readily available for design tools yet no and i i have thought about this before in terms of essentially being able to have a slider where you can nudge it up and down 
and check on that continuum what feels good to you. There are ways you can do that in Figma, for example, with sizes. You can drag a certain half of the text box that people don't realize is there, and you can basically drag the value up and down. That sort of thing is really useful because it allows you to shorten that feedback loop of, does this look good? No. Okay, I'll try the next value. And it means you might even try values you never would have tried before because you're not having to intentionally choose a place to stop on a slider or something. But yeah, you're right that it doesn't doesn't have that for color contrast and it would be nice if especially in things online with uh, color contrast checkers they don't give you a way either to say they say oh yes this does pass or no this doesn't pass the contrast requirement but they don't let you nudge it until it does pass and i feel like that would be really useful because you might overshoot basically and end up with something that is uh, has too much contrast just because you're worried about hitting that limit right yeah it's a very manual process at least for me, yeah. I typically will find the palette that I'm happy with, and then I use a tool called Pika or Pika, Pika? I don't know. Um, it's like a Mac OS toolbar program, and I will do exactly that. I will like test it, see where it's at, and then bump mm. it, nudge it one, like using HSL, bump it up or down one by one until I hit that. Because if I was really happy with where the color was and I don't want to have to tweak it too much, but just hit that kind of minimum, no. um, that's usually how I work. That's a lot of extra steps. It'd be nice if it was just built into Figma. Yeah, I've run into this recently with accent colors. I was trying to choose uh, three accent colors for a website I was designing, and it wasn't originally designed with these in mind, and so I was essentially adding them in after the fact. And... I was trying to find accent colors that were bright enough that they felt like accent colors, you know, quite exciting colors. But once they were that bright, it meant that I couldn't use them, for example, as text color. And one simple way to add accent colors in after the fact is to change the color of text so that the thing that the accent color relates to, in this case, tasks and docs, um, is in the is in the uh, color of the um, the correct color. So you might have green for tasks and yellow for docs or something. But then you, you realize your nicely chosen accent colors aren't the right contrast for text against a white background. And so you have to find other ways to integrate them into the design. And um, it would have been nice if I'd had a way to nudge it basically until it hit the limit. So then I could, like you say, keep it close enough to what I originally chose. Uh, yep. I suppose that's design though. I can't really complain. <laughs> Nudging. It's like a good problem to have. Right? <laughs> uh, I, I want to come back to something though, because you said, uh, I think you said WCAG earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's one of the topics I wrote down for this episode was how should we pronounce uh, the name of the specification or the guidelines? I think I think I probably do say WCAG or WCAG if I'm talking oh. to a designer and yeah. just without thinking. Uh -huh. But I think I probably should say WCAG because that feels like the least controversial. <laughs> Not that there's a lot of controversy boiling around this sort of thing, but it feels like the least controversial way to refer to it. Yes, I, I I, I agree. I think that's probably the safest. Um, I don't remember how I came to call it WCAG. I think I probably heard it from other designers at work. <laughs> it sounds like a, a whip sound. WCAG. <laughs> I like that. That's a good way of thinking of it. But I, I went on the WCAG website and um, I saw, I was quite excited, I saw in the sidebar a section called pronunciation. Oh. I thought, they know this is a problem. They've got a whole section for pronunciation of WCAG. It turns out it's about pronunciation in uh, like screen readers. Oh. And so if someone writes um, 
you know, an acronym or something, how should it be pronounced? Mm. And so they don't actually cover their own pronunciation, which I didn't like. I, I want them to have a an official pronunciation guide somewhere. Yeah. Well, now I'm and just... they might do, but it's not here. I'm curious how a screen reader would announce that, actually, because it's all caps. I guess it would just read each letter kind of in a shouty way, potentially. Yeah, the Anthony approach, let's call it. <laughs> but yeah, it's also talking about, I think the example they give is um, uh, American, uh, United States states names. So people often shorten Massachusetts to M-A-S-S. Yeah. And it's, it's talking about how that should be handled. So um, important but not what I was looking for at that moment. I see. see. So yeah, we'll have to just agree to disagree for this episode and uh, okay. l- listeners with their own pronunciation can uh, put up with ours. <laughs> that sounds good to me. Um, so we've talked about just contrasts so far, but there's so much more that goes into mm. accessibility um, for interface design. And I'm curious... I know that you are somewhat of a technical designer. You built your own website with HTML and CSS, mm. right? And JavaScript? I don't know. No. No intentionally JavaScript. Not. Very cool. Yeah, I don't I don't like JavaScript. Okay. As a as a rule as a rule, although obviously I work with people who use it all the time. But <laughs> um I feel like if I can do everything with just HTML and CSS, then I will. Mm-hmm. I I appreciate that approach for sure. Um but I am curious how much you think about interactions and behavior as part of a basic accessibility check while you're designing. So not just thinking about contrast, but um, at least for me, because I think I am more technical, I'm always thinking about code, the code of things and like the markup and the semantics and the behavior. But I often wonder Mm. how much that is a part of like most designers process who are less technical and thinking more about just the designer spending most of their time in Figma. Yeah. I do have some thoughts about this and they might not please you uh, because you work on design systems (laughs) more than I do sort of more system. This is going to sound silly, but more systematic design systems. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously we use a design system at uh, the company I work for, but it's a bit more rough and ready because we have less designers and so it has less need to be completely systematic. But um, I think my position might be shared by other designers in that I wish I would not have to worry about a lot of the accessibility issues. And I think the way to avoid worrying about that is to have it basically encoded into the design system or the code itself of whatever app you're designing, whatever interface you're designing. Because things like uh, keyboard navigation, you know, tabbing through the interface and having things highlight ideally a designer and developer who's building something from scratch not from scratch building something with a design system wouldn't have to worry about that ideally it would be essentially encoded into the material they're working with and so every element i place into an interface in figma ideally the developer doesn't really have to think about the fact that each of those should be accessible through tabbing from a keyboard and i partly say that because then it's someone else's problem which is, you know, lazy. But I, I partly say it because that means that you don't have to essentially slow down during that iteration process. And I can immediately counter myself there because I think sometimes slowing down and considering those things systematically is good for interface design. But um, it, it's quite nice not to, be able, not to have to think about it and to be able to move quickly, essentially, mm-hmm. when you're trying out ideas. Um, 
So yeah, I'm, I'm curious how you think about that from a, a sort of system design or yeah. design system perspective. I think it, I, I'm. I think this is something that causes friction is uh, at the point where a designer using a design system wants to explore something outside of the design system. So even if you have mm. all of the accessible patterns in place and they're perfect and they pass all the checks and they work for everybody, the second you want to take away something, you want to add something or change the state of something or add basically just behavior, that's where I see designers um, start to feel really frustrated with the process or they feel like they're being restricted in some way. And I think it's hard to navigate those conversations if you don't understand the web. I guess we're just talking about the web at this point. I'm talking mm. about the web right now. But if you don't understand markup a little bit to know what's actually possible in those scenarios, I think it can be hard to feel accepting of pushback from an engineer or an accessibility designer or engineer um, when you want to introduce new patterns that really break the mold of of what the design system has already provided. I suppose at that point, or if you're designing something absolutely from scratch, then the designer would have to consider, should have to consider accessibility a lot more because they're essentially the ones that are defining those rules. Um, I think partly my position comes from working at my previous job with a front-end developer who cared a lot about accessibility. And so I felt safe stepping back from that role and saying, okay, this person, as as part of their process, goes through and makes sure they can tab through every element. Especially because a lot of those tests have to have to happen in the code anyway. Right. Uh, I can't imagine someone making a prototype in Figma so that you can test how it looks when you tab through every element. Because that's just... Uh, overkill for the sort of prototyping you can do in Figma. So yeah, that person was sort of dedicated to that uh, as a concept. And so that made me feel good because I could think about it less, uh, especially because when I think you have these sorts of guidelines like you get with the WCAG, you shouldn't have to think about whether you've implemented them because they're already existent. They're already accepted by everyone, essentially, or accepted by everyone as a good idea. I'm not saying implemented by everyone. Uh, a designer shouldn't have to think about those things or a developer even from scratch every time because that makes it more likely you'll forget one every time right? or several hundred. So yes, it's um, this relates to something in the notes actually, which is that if you're, if you're evaluating an interface, how much should you have to think about it? And ideally not, um, but I think it does come down to yeah, when designers are working on something new and they're choosing the color schemes themselves, for example, or they're choosing two colors from a, a very large color palette, which is quite common these days in design systems, uh, they can easily make mistakes. And so for those sorts of things where you're making your own decisions, as it were, uh, I think it should be at the point of the decision and not a check afterwards. Oh, I think yeah. it's sort of on it's on every designer when they're choosing colors, for example, to think, is this accessible? Uh, and not have to have someone else come to them and say, oh, this isn't accessible. Because a designer can make that decision in the moment. They don't have to, you know, tab through everything to test it with colors. They should be able to realize at a glance that, oh, wait, this might not be right. So there are some things as part of the design process that can be decided up front uh, that don't need remediation. It's basically some the term we use at GitHub is pushing accessibility left or pull, pulling accessibility left. Pushing. 
<laughs> I don't know. Moving accessibility left in the process so that um, you can catch these things before they even hit the code, essentially. And then you're not in a mm. remediation cycle for the rest of time, which I think every company is probably in a re remediation cycle for accessibility right now. So the more you can catch up front, the better. What is remediation in this context? Um, catching accessibility violations in production, filing issues for it, and then fixing them. So it's a whole mm. cycle process of audits, fixing, shipping the fix, more audits, because everything is connected. So it's kind of a never-ending yeah. cycle. But the small hang, the low-hanging fruit that you can catch in the beginning helps those kinds of processes, especially for a big company that has a ton of stuff to remediate. Just getting rid of the low-hanging fruit up front, I think, is great. And if that responsibility can be on designers, especially something like contrast, I think that makes sense. And I, I like that approach. Yeah, it sort of comes back to the, the tool discussion we were having earlier where Ideally, basically, your design tool says, okay, what's your background color? You've chosen this. Okay, what's your foreground color? You've chosen this. And then it gives you a huge warning yeah, or makes you sort of commit to making a mistake almost uh, if you want to choose something that has lower contrast than ideal because it's too easy to just sort of do it by feel and then, like you say, catch it later and have to go through painful changes. I'm designing something right now. It's, it's a whole new style and it's basically a set of colors but it's a whole new style for the app i work on and i'm designing light and dark mode and I, i'm working through it all with a developer and this developer keeps coming back to me with questions and clarifications and it helps you realize how many decisions you don't make in the design process and uh part of the problem with that was that i wish there was some tool i could use it as a designer without having to go through and do it all manually to basically say okay here's the style of element I want for this particular element type, how do I check that against every single context it will be found in in the real app? And the easiest way to do that is to, well, currently, is to uh, develop it. Yeah. <laughs> right, is to actually put it into, not into production necessarily, but into like a staging environment or something, and then click through and see what looks weird. Because there isn't a way for me to say, okay, I've got this button style, unless I do a manual audit, what is every background it will be seen against? And it's often those sort of situations, those stress cases, where you don't realize there was a, a particular background it'd be shown against that caused the most issues. So um, I do wish our tools did more to help us make these decisions, like you say, further left in the process. Yeah. I really feel for designers who are not at all technical or are not interested in learning some front-end development because I... I get so frustrated in Figma. The second I have to handle multiple themes, I am out of there. I'll, I'll work in mm. CSS. And to me, Storybook is the best tool for the scenario you're, you're describing. I'm working on color tokens right now with eight themes. We have mm. two color modes and eight themes. Um, there is no way in hell I am going to work on that in Figma. That would drive mm. me insane trying to spec that out for eight themes it's just we don't have the tools available to to work on that no. so at that point you have to move into code and do it for real which is more work uh, well i don't know more or less work i guess it depends but yeah, yeah. I, i'm feeling the pain even on the two themes i'm working on so uh, I, I i know how you feel to a quarter 
I know a quarter <laughs> of how you feel right now. And so I think, I guess, part of the conclusion there is that it should not be essentially a separate process of, I've done the design, now I'll check whether it's accessible. I think whatever a designer can do to make it second nature, because there's so many things that an interface designer does that's second nature as they're designing. There might be things they never even try because they know intuitively that it won't work. And I think if they could build more of that understanding, sort of intuitive understanding into how they think about interfaces in sort of an accessible sense, then uh, the better it is. And obviously we're not saying anything that people disagree with because everyone sort of nods along the accessibility and then fails to do it. So we've talked a little bit about parts of accessibility that we feel like can easily be a part of the design process for designers. What, what would you say to a designer that feels really restrained by accessibility requirements? Perhaps they're getting pushback in the development stage for their design and things are not being implemented the way they designed them. Um, how, what would you recommend to somebody mm. that's really feeling those restraints? I think bluntly, there's a lot of ego there because designers feel like they're the ultimate decider and I like it like this, so I want it like this. But those sort of ego issues aside, I think most designers realize at some point that those restraints are helpful because they, because they give you limited options, they increase your creativity. I think that's personally where the, I find the most fun is when I've even applied arbitrary constraints to myself. And so I think if, if more designers who feel restrained could view it that way, I know I'm asking a lot, but I think that would help the way they approach it. If they set those accessibility sort of guidelines as a restraint from the start on their design, I think they probably find it a more enjoyable process to begin with. But one of the things I like about the WCAG is if you go to their website, they've got these four headline groupings that they use to basically group up all of their guidelines, uh, which are um, the interface elements should be perceivable, operable, understandable, and robust. And you can go on the website, the WCAG website, and basically read the summary in the uh, at a glance section to find out more about those. But they're essentially really good general guidelines for designing interfaces. And that's what I think people don't necessarily realize is that people often think about the ones that are famously mentioned and don't realize that the WCAG has essentially outlined these guidelines in a way that makes any interface better. And of course, there's lots of things in there about, you know, um, if people only use a screen reader, for example, because they don't have sight, then there are things you need to consider uh, for people in that position. But there are other things in there that just make for a better interface, like um, give users enough time to read and use content and make text readable and understandable. And that's one that comes up so often with uh, low contrast against backgrounds is that people aren't making their text readable. But it's not just people who, you know, have uh, vision issues that benefit from that. It's everyone. So I think if you just go in there and understand those four sort of broad categories and keep them in mind, that's much easier than feeling like you have to follow all 100 or how many there are guidelines in the WCAG uh, set. And so I think starting with that, not as a restraint, but as almost like a, a starting point for good interface design in the first place might be the, the right sort of mental model for how to approach it. I don't know if that rant made sense. Oh no, it absolutely makes sense. And that's, I mean, this is why I wanted to talk about this and part of what I was trying to say earlier. I don't think I was very clear, but I think 
sometimes it's difficult when it feels like you're being attacked as a designer for not doing something excessively or like you said, people commenting on a tweet, Mm -hmm. this is not accessible without any context. It can feel like an attack sometimes. Um, And I, I just don't feel like it should be that way. It should just be a part of the starting place of where you are as a designer designing an interface to make a good design. And that's where I see it kind of relating back to taste and to beauty. It should just like be integrated in that and not have to feel like a separate checklist on top and just be a part of your process from the beginning and less of a Mm. strenuous situation anytime someone's asking you questions about how your interface actually works. How would it be operable? Not in Figma, but like in reality. And I do think ego is part of it, unfortunately. Um, But I really like your perspective on just like not just thinking of it as any other design restraint that you have as part of your process and not something on top that you're worried about being attacked for. Mm. And I think it's hopefully no one believes that you cannot make a beautiful or uh, I don't know what the beautiful equivalent for really good interactivity is. I can't think of a good word right now, but um, beautiful to use. Uh, I suppose usable is, but you know, usable can be a spectrum, right? It's bad usability or good usability. Anyway, hopefully no one believes that you cannot make a beautiful or usable interface while following the WCAG guidelines. And so you'd almost think that designers would want to sort of revel in the challenge of this is what I have to work with. I cannot go below this color contrast, for example. And um, how can I make it the most beautiful or most usable it can be with those restraints? Uh, Yeah, that's the sort of design I I enjoy the most. So um, hopefully uh, more and more designers think that way over time. Yeah, that should, I mean, I fully agree that as a designer, you are constantly learning or you should want to keep learning and improving. Mm. And this is just one of those things that you at this point in time should be learning and improving on and making it part of your process and not pushing against it in a, you know, non-productive way. So I have a lot of feels about it, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> if, you, if you've noticed. <laughs> I can tell, yeah, you, uh, you feel strongly about it. That's a good thing. Yeah. We, we need more people to feel strongly about accessibility. Something that I think about a lot is my background in graphic design because I'm not, you know, I didn't learn interface design necessarily like Mm. in school. I I studied graphic design. Accessibility never comes up in graphic design courses. I mean, maybe it does now, but you kind of wonder, like, is that a part of it? Or should posters have contrast, like printed things that you're, you know, showcasing in a gallery or something? But I wonder if the ego part might come from people who are classically trained in graphic design where it is like not, I mean, there's principles and guidelines that you're following the same with interface design, but a lot of it is by feel and because Mm. it's more of an art. And so transferring that to interface design without acknowledging how the web works and the standards that we have to abide by can feel like people are attacking you as a designer and the decisions that you're making. So I don't know, I often wonder about that. I think there's probably a lot of people like me today who have kind of untraditional backgrounds because 
interface design, I don't think it was really taught or UX design wasn't taught when I was in school. I hope that's changing now, but. It's an interesting split between, because you might see a poster on, on the street, for example, or, you know, advertisement online, and probably it's not what the person is there to look at. It's almost like it's there to grab your attention. It's not necessarily sort of utility-based or what they want to be doing. And so it feels more artistic in a way. They're, they're pulling away from the utility side and towards the art side. And once the art creeps in, almost a lot of those rules go out the window. But uh, I really like the idea of comparing uh, interfaces not to things like advertising posters, but to things like wayfinding and signage. Yeah. Because people who do wayfinding and signage care so much about clarity. I remember hearing those stories about the woman who designed all of the road sign system in the UK. And um, I don't know if this is standard for road sign designers. I assume not. She, she set up this testing basically where she drove a car at 45 miles an hour towards every sign she designed or something just so she could see <laughs> how they looked at sort of the average speed. And uh, I don't think you'd ever get a graphic designer caring that much about how sort of usable their product is. And I think that's partly because generally things that graphic designers work on are they're there to grab your attention more than they are to be used. Um, I'm thinking mostly about posters, like you said. There's probably mm -hmm. exceptions. But yeah, so I think maybe more signage designers should be getting into interface design and the graphic designers can, you know, uh, they can still make the jump, but maybe they have to learn some things. Yeah. Wow, that is dedication, Again. driving at all of your signs that you've designed. I really yeah. love that. <laughs> she sounds like an amazing woman from the little I've heard of her. I think she cared a lot about signage, which is um, a good thing to care about, to be fair, but uh, not common. Yeah, someone's got to do it. Yeah. So I think the the last thing I, I want to wrap up on, um, just curious again from your perspective as somebody who's looking at interfaces a lot and discussing them, um, do you feel like, have you noticed a change at all over the past couple of years in, in the designs that you're seeing that are catching your eye as, as just being more accessible as it's definitely becoming a bigger part of our culture as web designers, people working on the web the past couple of years? Hmm. I used to see a lot, I still hear jokes about light gray text on a light gray background, but I think I used to hear them a lot more. And I think I used to see a lot more light gray text on light gray backgrounds, um, sort of, let's say 10 years ago. Whereas now I think the jokes might have stuck around, but actually people are slowly realizing that that sort of contrast is not okay. And I know we keep coming back to color contrast, but it's an easy sort of sign of people not considering accessibility. Whereas it's much harder to see from a page that you look at for 10 seconds, whether or not you can tab through every element. So contrast almost feels like the, um, I usually use brown M&Ms as the, the metaphor, but you know the story, I think it's Van Halen or Def Leppard. What, one of the huge uh, sort of metal bands, they had this uh, clause in their standard contract, which said that you have to put a bowl of M&Ms in our changing room. Oh, yes. When we come to your venue. I have heard this. Uh, but you have to take out the brown M&Ms. And that was there as a canary in the coal mine, to use another metaphor, that if they haven't paid attention to that clause, then have they paid attention to other things? And so text contrast color almost feels like the canary in the coal mine of, if they haven't considered this, then what else haven't they considered? And so I think that's why it's, it's so often the um, sort of the go-to example. Anyway, I think I see that a lot less. And... Uh, it would be nice if that was because people had commented on it um, a lot. 
But uh, what's your perspective? I assume, I mean, most of the design you see is probably a design system. And so I guess it's less <laughs> of a, you're less likely to see accessibility yeah. issues, I assume. But. That's true. It's it's definitely the place that people try to bake it in as much as possible. And it would be mm. really weird to see a new design system with completely inaccessible color combinations. Just just color, though. We can see it's it's definitely common to still see inaccessible components from a behavior and markup perspective, but mm. it's very hard to make things accessible. We're all constantly rebuilding the same things over and over again because we don't really have basic components in the web to use yet. We just got dialogue. That's yeah. one like that's going to definitely help things like that, but... Um, what I was thinking about is like the age of dribble, um, because I think people kind of make fun of dribble now on Twitter. If you post something that looks like graphic design of an interface <laughs> from mm. dribble, people will pick up on this is completely like imaginary and none of this could ever happen, but it is, um, hard to look away when you scroll dribble and see just like these kind of dreamy interfaces that are just not at all usable or accessible. And yeah. I think those that kind of worries me for new designers seeing that as inspiration and wondering like, why doesn't my app look like this? It's because that's not real. It's just a picture. <laughs> but I feel like yeah. there's less of that now. People are less interested in seeing stuff like that on Twitter and they they more so want to see like, what is what are you really building and shipping? What has... What has this company actually produced and what can we pick apart about it and learn from? So I think that's encouraging. Mm. Yeah, I think the sort of work that you do on design systems is probably a big part of it in a sense that a lot more companies are approaching their design systematically. And I think even if you just approach design, interface design systematically, you're probably making sort of smarter decisions. Well, you might disagree with smarter, but uh, you're probably making more uh, structured decisions and therefore making you're sort of more likely to make better decisions because you're not choosing a background and foreground color combination for every page you're designing and forgetting what you used the last time. You're just using one set of tokens and then you're just using those by default. And so I guess it's much easier to lay the foundations right and have that reflected through the, the whole interface. Whereas um, in the age of Dribble, which I agree is probably over, I hope it's over, <laughs> um, it was a lot more sort of custom work and one of a kind stuff yeah um, you're right it's not realistic yep exactly yeah so things seem to be improving i think the general problem is that it's easier to ignore accessibility and one of the standard sort of rules of interface design is that if you want something to be done you should make it the easier thing to do and so that expands outwards to design in general for designers is if we want accessibility to be done we should make it easier to do and uh, incidentally, shout out to Webflow, which I had to learn as part of my job. I haven't used Framer, so I'm not comparing the two, but um, I use Webflow and uh, to design and build a website. And it gives you the warnings. It says, oh, there's sort of eight accessibility issues you should fix. And so it, it calls out things like images that have alt text. And uh, I really enjoyed that because it meant that I didn't have to worry so much. I could go through the checklist and uh, solve all those problems, which Webflow made relatively easy to solve as well. And then, feel more confident that the website I was producing was accessible. So um, that's nice. That's an example of a tool that is putting the work in to basically 
so that I don't have to do as much work, which is uh, always appreciated as a designer. That's really cool. I didn't know that about Webflow. That, that's mm. like very exciting and encouraging to me because I, I like the idea of tools like Webflow making this easier for designers to understand how the web works. Yeah. And because I know it's very much tied to actual markup and it's you're basically like you have access to kind of learn about the web as you're designing, which I think is really, really cool. And I like that. Yeah, I assume Webflow knew that their tool was being used to build a significant portion of websites on the internet. And they hopefully felt the weight of responsibility is like we're in a, like sort of a nexus point of uh, a lot of websites are being released via our tool. We should probably include features that help people do the right thing. Doesn't sound so much like Squarespace, at least the last time I used it, uh, like eight years ago, I don't know, where you could, it was just a big jumbly mess of whatever. Mm. Um, well, it's a different time, right? That's yeah. sort of what you're talking about. The Webflow represents a more modern approach yeah. to web design, hopefully. Very cool. Okay. I think that that wraps it up for us talking about accessibility today. Any final, yes. final, I mean, you just had a final thought, basically. I would say, I guess my final thought is see how you can integrate it into your process without thinking of it as an additional restraint or checklist that is going to ruin your beautiful design. Integrate it into and make your design beautiful and accessible. Um, all mm. at the same time, except be more accepting and open and willing to learn. Yeah, I found even if you don't have a design system, you can be more systematic in your design process. And that helps you to lay those foundations correctly from the start with things like colors. So um, I think you're right that there are ways to integrate it that people maybe aren't considering and should. Absolutely. Okay, well, thanks. Thanks everybody for listening. And yeah, thank you. We'll see you in the next one. But I almost always agree with the person when they say that. But um, <laughs> is it your cat? Hold on. I'm sorry. Let me just, I'm just going to pause for one second and I'll let him. He's about to jump in front of the camera. Okay, hold on. <laughs> Our first guest star is Katie's cat, who I'm going to guess their name right now and say it's Sprinkles. Sorry. Oh, my God. Okay. Completely just interrupted Did you hear anything? You. Did you take your headphones out? I did. Oh, I was speaking. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Not, not because I assumed we were still recording for the show or something, but I was, I was saying that your cat is our first guest star. And I guessed that your cat was named Sprinkles because I thought I should guess what the cat is called. Oh, <laughs> no, that is, that's not his name. Um, his name is Kellis and he's named after like a fantasy book series that I did not read, but my partner did. <laughs> so it's really fun when I get to explain the name. <laughs>